0: The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwirin.
1: The ongoing war in Ukraine has us all on edge. The death tolls continue to rise, damage to and mass exodus of a once thriving country grows larger. And the threat of war spilling out of the country and the region is in the back of the minds of every person, even tangentially, following this conflict. Here in the U.S., we don't see much of an impact on a daily basis, save the rising prices of goods, especially gasoline. But it's important to remember that there are real people at the heart of this war. And while there are many outlets out there available to give you the geopolitical analysis and even the humanitarian stories, we thought it would be a good idea to focus on the Jewish communities of the region. That's why I invited on this week's guest.
0: Hi, I'm Sergey Kodinsky. I am a writer at the Queen's Jewish Link, a newspaper that serves the Queens and Long Island communities. And I also teach art history and Jewish history at Turo College.
1: My friend and colleague Sergei will be giving us a history lesson of the Jewish communities, not only in Ukraine, but all of the surrounding areas. How we can help in assisting and what he thinks the future of Eastern European Jewry will look like. By the way, this was recorded on Thursday, March 3rd, just in case anything happens to change between then and the time you are listening. Sergey, thank you so much for joining me this week. I wish it was under better circumstances. We, we, we both write uh, for the same paper and I've been trying to figure out what topic I've always wanted you to come on and, uh, and discuss. Um, and unfortunately, I'm having you here to discuss some of the current events, sort of, uh, going on in uh, Ukraine and that part of the world. Um, so before we get into all of that. I'd like you to please give a, a little bit of a background um, into into you. Where, where do you originally come from, um, and how did you get to be doing all these different things with your life? Like so you have a bunch of different things: art history, Jewish history, writer for the Jews. Like those aren't necessarily art history and Jewish history definitely don't go together, as I, for what I would think. But how did this all come about?
0: I just had too many interests, and unfortunately growing up here in America where you're told you could be whatever you want to be means some of us are not sure what our career choices are until much later. Uh, I wish my parents had pulled me in a stronger direction towards a particular thing, but sometimes I guess it's good to be knowledgeable in many things. I mean, just last week I gave a Black History Month lecture to a historical site in Queens. They were amazed, and I said, imagine how much Jewish history I know. I mean, I happen to be (laughs) Jewish. But um, the funny thing is, at the synagogue, people were asking me my opinion on the Ukraine war. And I said, well, to be be frank, I'm actually not Russian nor Ukrainian. I was born in Latvia. My wife is from Belarus. My paternal family is from Belarus. My maternal family is from Moldova and Romania. So Jews, I would say, in Ashkenazi Eastern Europe prior to the war, were semi-nomadic people. We moved around from generation to generation sometimes a couple of miles sometimes a couple hundred miles depending on persecution political conditions economic conditions so in my family background there's a a little bit of ukraine a lot of moldova romania lots of belarus and a little bit of latvia and since i was eight i've been living in queens and just recently moved to long island wow
1: huge history but um i want to correct something that i mentioned earlier i said we're going to have you on to talk about the uh current situation in ukraine we're not going to actually be talking so much about that maybe we'll get into it in a little bit um I'm, I'm sure there's other news outlets out there i know there are no news outlets out there that are basically covering this you know 24 7 and people can get that kind of news from other places what i want to talk about today because this is the jewish Living podcast is the the various jewish communities in these countries that you mentioned um estonia latvia belarus you you can even go into ukraine and and russia all those things um I want to I want to get a sense of, of of how these communities came to exist, the history behind them, um, and and any anything else that you might want to tell us that are interesting. Um, before we get into that, though, if you can give us just an overview of the geography of the area, I know people can go on Google Maps and look into where exactly all the countries are. As a, as a matter of fact, when Russia started amassing troops on the Ukrainian border. I went onto Google Maps, like, all right, where are these people, and, and where's all these other countries, where's Belarus? So over the last couple of weeks, I myself have been just studying Eastern European geography and Baltic countries' uh, geographies just to see what I would be able to tell. But if you can give a little bit of an overview as to where everything is, especially as it relates to the various Jewish communities in in some of these Baltic countries, and 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 I'm assuming that there's a ton of these communities, but let's focus on the larger volume ones.
0: I know that uh, when you were looking at that Google map for the border lines, which were now essentially front lines, you're probably seeing names of towns and villages that resonate in your family history. Perhaps they had a Yiddish pronunciation and names do change depending on who's in charge. But these are places with a long Jewish history that goes back at least a millennium. Because around the year 1000 is when the Polish kingdom accepted Christianity and under Boleslav the Wise, rather than looking down at the Jews, when the Western European kingdoms were kicking out the Jews, exacting massacres on the Jews, Poland welcomed them. It became a place of tolerance, a malchus shalcheset for that time. Jews arrived there and they were viewed as an asset, as a positive, because we have relatives and connections all over the world because we are a diasporic people. The Russian kingdom, however, under Ivan the Terrible, did not like the Jews. This thing called judovshina, judaizing, the idea that some Russians were looking at the Bible and seeing the Old Testament and finding more truth in it. Those people, who later became known as the subotniks, sabbatarians, were persecuted. So Ivan the Terrible closed Russia to the Jews. But in the late 1700s, Catherine the Great expanded Russian empire westward I mean they gone eastward into Siberia towards Alaska now they're looking west under Catherine the Great Ukraine was conquered Odessa was built in 1795 in the 1790s Poland was dismembered divided between the Prussians Austro-Hungarians and the Russians and Catherine de- the Great now had a huge Jewish population more than two and a half million on our hands the Russian government established a pale of settlement like a giant reservation where Jews could live and that was Lithuania, parts of Latvia, Belarus, Poland, Ukraine, Moldova. Now, is that mixed with other people? Yes. Yes. When we think of the shtetlach, we're not thinking of Kyrgios Yoel, which is 99.9% Jewish. The shtetlach of Eastern Europe had a mixed population of Jews and Christians. Some shtetlach, like the one where my grandparents were born, were majority Jewish. So it did feel culturally very Jewish, even if you weren't religious, maintained your identity that way. But within the Pale of Settlement, of course, there were plenty of cities and towns where Jews were not allowed, economic restrictions, and all other kinds of persecutive measures. But nevertheless, this is how the Russian Empire ended up with the world's biggest Jewish population, because Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania were once part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, that tolerant kingdom that goes back to the Middle Ages that was dismembered in the 1790s.
1: Hmm, Okay, so obviously that part of the world, the borders change or at this time that we're talking about, in the, in the 16 17 1800s, the borders changed pretty rapidly depending on who was in charge. Um, over the last, let's say, 30 years or so, since probably the end of, of, of Soviet Russia, the borders have been relatively stable, maybe until 2014 and the in the Crimea invasion. Um, where do we find the largest Jewish communities still in existence in that area?
0: So... I should point out that the borders stay the same, largely, but it's the cultures inside the countries that have changed. For example, the Jews living in Ukraine, in the past 30 years, they've become less Russophone and more Ukrainian speaking. They've started to identify more with their country. Likewise with the Jews in Lithuania and in Latvia have become much more European because those countries are now members of EU and NATO. In Belarus, most Jews still speak Russian as their first language rather than Belarusian, the historical language of the region. Uh, Now, the largest Jewish population in the former Soviet Union is within Russia itself. The communities in Moscow and St. Petersburg are sizable because they include not just Ashkenazi Jews, but also Bukharian Jews, Georgian Jews, and Mountain Jews who settled in those cities for their prosperity. Uh, The Russian community is also unique because largely they are self-sufficient. They don't really need that much donations from abroad because there's a lot of wealthy Jews who support the Jewish community. Sadly, some of those wealthy Jews are oligarchs, and this week they lost a lot of their funding. So they're suffering. But within other countries like Belarus, Ukraine, a lot of the funding does come from abroad, from supporters in the West and in Israel.
1: Right, so I, 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 want, I want to get back to that, but something you just mentioned was very interesting. So we here in the West right now are focusing a lot on supporting the Ukrainians and and their plight going on now, and, and a lot of the Tzedakah campaigns that are going around right now focus on the Ukrainian Jewish community. Now, unfortunately, there's a large Jewish community in, in, in Moscow and in St. Petersburg and I'm sure elsewhere in Russia. Those people are hurting now as well, mostly due to the fact that they're being ruled by a pretty vicious dictator and the rest of the world basically cut them off. Um, is there any way that you know of that we could support that community without supporting, let's say, the Russian government or the oligarchs that, that have funded them until now?
0: Very much. You just give directly to the Jewish organizations. The Jewish organizations are not run by the oligarchs. I mean some of them are, but like Chabad is independent. They are non-political, mostly in practice, certainly in theory. But we just have to wait and see, because I'm not sure how we can send money directly to Russia at this time. However, in Belarus, which is a pro-Russian government there, uh, a government that's also ruled by a dictator over there, you could still send money to the community of Yad Yisrael in Pinsk, a community that's been there since the 90s, that is now sheltering 93 individuals who fled from Kiev to Pinsk. I should also point out Chabad is not the only uh, organization on the scene. There are uh, the community of Karlin stolen Hasidim. They run the only yeshiva in Belarus in Pinsk. They also run the, or they ran until this week, the Yad Yisrael uh, uh, Yad Yisrael yeshiva in uh, in Kiev.
1: If I'm not mistaken, are they also the ones that run the shkita in? ukraine i've heard of these people and, and and
0: rabbi Bleich, who's one of the chief rabbis in ukraine is a Karlin Stolener hasid he arrived in ukraine in 1990 just before the collapse of the soviet union and he travels back and forth between the u.s and ukraine uh to support the community there all
1: right so it wouldn't surprise me if he was running some sort of the of the over there but like as you mentioned that like that uh, something some bell went in my head went off in my head from like back in 2014 when I was doing this research on them. And when you mentioned the al Yisrael, I'm like, like, that sounds so familiar. So somebody out there can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure they run the, 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 or the Shkita operations throughout Ukraine. Um, mentioning Ukraine, when people think of Ukraine, I know you just mentioned Khabad, but the, the first place that uh, that people think of really is in, in our community is Uman. Um, huge uh, tourist attraction, especially uh, Rosh Hashanah time. What is the community like in Uman, outside of the week leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Rajana. and aside from that, where are the other major Jewish communities? I'm sure Kiev has a bunch, um, but is, are there other
0: areas that we should be uh, aware of? I've had many offers over the years to go to Uman with my friends, and I've never taken them up on the offer, and now I feel like I've missed out. Uh, especially considering how much has been rebuilt there, because during the Soviet years, that was just a parking lot, clandestinely visited by Breslov Hasidim. But since then, it's been a complex that welcomes thousands of visitors. But there's always a Jewish presence there throughout the year, a much smaller community. But when it comes to Hasidic history, in Ukraine. It's not just Uman. Rachmastrivka is in Ukraine, Nadvorna, Munkach, Ungvar, especially the further west you go. When it comes to Chabad communities, even though the village of Lubavitchi is in the Smolensk region of Russia near the Ukrainian border, Liade, uh, Rabbi Shnur Zalman of Liade, the first uh, Chabad Rebbe, that's in Belarus, but the last Chabad Rebbe, the seventh Chabad Rebbe, was born in Ukraine, in southern Ukraine. And today, or at least until this week, Chabad has had Chabad houses in Kiev, Kharkiv, Lviv, Dnipro, Odessa, Belotserkov, Belgorod, Dnistrovsky, Berdichev, Cherkasy, ivano Frankivsk, Kryvyi Lugansk, Donetsk, Mariupol, Rovno, Shetomir, and Kryvyi among others. Kryvyi by the way, is the birthplace of President Zelensky.
1: I, w- I would love to tell my audience that that uh, Sergey just did that. Off the top of his head, but he does have a list. He did come prepared for this. I want to be accurate <laughs> as <laughs> no, far as the exactly number of right. houses
0: and pay the proper respect to it, them. That's a tremendous
1: amount, and, and, ter- and in terms of of Kvarim, when we think of Uma, but there's a lot of other people that are that 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 are buried there. A lot of other uh, Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I mean of course the authority on uh, eastern european tours and kivray tzadikim is uh, the market of queens uh pesach Kron. i just have to say queens because i'm from there but <laughs> you could visit other communities and villages there Mezhebush, where the ball shemtov was buried malinov Berdichev, anipol ludmir are all places where kivray tzadikim have been beautifully rebuilt and restored since the collapse of the soviet union and now those places if they're not being destroyed by war now they are suffering neglect and abandonment because of this war. So it is not just Uman that is worthy of visit. And in Belarus, you saw the, the beautiful advertising campaigns of Shoe. When they're not visiting the Vilna Gaon's in Lithuania, they are visiting Radin, or Radun as it's known in Belarusian, just across the border, just less than a half hour from my wife's hometown of Lida. And now it's almost impossible for Americans to visit Belarus. So, if you're wondering why the latest deer shoe campaign did not have the kever of the Chavitzheim, it's because they were unable to visit it.
1: So, I, I do want to ask about Belarus, um, specifically because, up until maybe you know a month ago, people were calling the the president of Belarus the last dictator in Europe. Man, now they, he's been joined, uh, even though he probably been, he's been a dictator for quite some time now um what is it like currently you know you said that you have family and your wife has family in belarus what is it like currently living under that dictatorship in belarus as a jewish person is there anything that that is different about it is it what we think of as a classic dictatorship uh, that oppresses jews and i guess the rest of the population but jews in particular what's it like there now
0: alexander lukashenko has been the leader of belarus since 1994 He is not openly anti-Semitic. Any statements that he said that appear anti-Semitic are simply the result of his ignorance because he was a very lightly educated collective farm manager, Mm. so a man with relatively little executive experience prior to becoming president. He does not persecute Jews for being Jewish, but at the same time, it's very difficult to be Jewish in a country that is economically and politically isolated from much of the world. So, can you keep kosher in Belarus? Of course, when my wife was little and she went to the Yad Yisrael school in Pinsk, they would visit the grandmothers at the farm and watch them milking the cows, and presto, it's of uh, Yisrael, because it was watched by Jewish schoolchildren. <laughs> so it is possible to be Jewish. The yeshiva is not persecuted by the government because they don't get involved in politics. But Jews prosper in countries that prosper. Jews prosper in countries that are open to the world. Similarly, in Russia, Vladimir Putin is not anti-Semitic. He talks about his Jewish uh, teacher when he was young, who taught him German, and uh, he talks about his Jewish neighbors when he was young. He's a generous supporter of Chabad, you know, kosher food in prisons, kosher food in the Russian army, Jewish chaplains in the Russian army. That's all fine and good, but then when you start bombing other countries, when you make life difficult for the Jews, even without saying that you're openly anti-Semitic, it's implied in the way that... Lukashenko and Putin behave that makes Jewish life difficult.
1: When you blow up a Holocaust memorial, um, that obviously we all know about that right
0: now, but can you give us a little bit of history behind that memorial that was blown up? The Babi Yar Ravine is located on the outskirts of Kiev, and it's where more than 33,000 Jews were murdered by Nazis and their Ukrainian collaborators in a couple of days in the summer of 1941, just uh, shortly after Kiev fell to the Nazis. In the Soviet period, apartments were built near Babi Yar, but writers like Evgeny Yevtushenko made sure that the memory of this ravine is kept alive. Initially, the Soviet Union built monuments there in memory of the murdered Soviet citizens, without mentioning Jews, even though the majority of the murdered Soviet citizens at Babi Yar were Jewish. Since the collapse of Soviet Union, Ukraine has built monuments there that notify, that note visitors that, yes, this is where most of the victims were Jews. Now, Babi Yar itself was not destroyed. There was a fire near it because it's near the television antenna station. So when the bombing happened earlier this week, it did not destroy the memorial, but there was a lot of damage around it. And part of the problem is that Putin claims to be liberating Ukraine from fascism, from the neo-Nazis. Yes, there are anti-Semites in Ukraine, there are neo-nazis in ukraine ukraine has of course a long history of anti-semitism you think of Khmelnytsky in 1648 petlura in 1920 and then uh bandera during world war ii names of some of the collaborators but ukraine has gone a long way since then and putin simply ignores it and sticks to his narrative now
1: let me talk we, we we've been talking about mostly the jewish population what um, and, and we mentioned different uh, sects of Hasidim. Uh, the majority of people that are living, majority of Jews that are living in these these uh, Europe, Eastern European, Baltic, uh, Russian adjacent countries, are they Orthodox? Are they from? Are they conservative? Are they Hasidish? Where where do they? Are they Sephardi? Where do they land on, on that on that? Uh, like what 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 are the demographics of these communities?
0: The majority of the Jews living in uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and the Baltic states are assimilated. Many of them are intermarried. Nevertheless, they recognize themselves as Jews, they attend Jewish events, whether it's cultural events, and whether it's religious events. I should point out that Hillel, the college campus organization, in Ukraine, they had, until this week, organizations in Kiev, Lviv, Kharkiv, Dnipro, and Odessa. In places like Latvia, where my uncle lives, there's synagogues in Riga, the capital, and in Yurmala, the seaside suburb, where my uncle lives. There are Jewish cemeteries. They are kept in good condition from, by the community and by donors abroad. As far as religious life, Chabad is very active, very visible on the scene. In particular, Chabad of Zhovtomyr in Ukraine also serves the elderly and isolated Jews in the shtetlach in the small towns around. But there are Reform communities as well which call themselves progressive liberal. They don't really use the word reform like they do here in America. Serving uh, the intermarried, the LGBT, people who don't always fit the traditional religious uh, identity. There's also the Jewish agency, Sohnut, that also has their emissaries or shluchim that are there to promote aliyah. But for those who do not wish to make aliyah, at least promote the connection to Israel by teaching Hebrew.
1: So this uh, conversation would not be complete if we didn't mention ukrainian president vladimir Zelensky, president prime minister what am i up to here
0: vladimir Zelensky has been president since 2019
1: president so um yes we all know it by now everybody knows by now he's jewish he's not a classic politician he came up as a as a comedian as a tv personality um my question first of all is is he the only outside of israel the only head of state in the world currently
0: that is jewish i believe so
1: okay so um what does that have an effect on, if any, the Jewish community in Ukraine and the surrounding areas? Is that does that is that a positive for them, or do people look down on on people who don't agree necessarily with Vladimir Zelensky? Do they take that and and make it? like they look down on the Jewish community? How does that affect the uh, the the Jewish community by having a head of state that is also Jewish?
0: It puts a lot of uh, pressure on him to do his job and to do it well. Because he knows that if he fails at his job, it would not reflect good on the Jewish community. If he does his job well, oh, the Jews are great. The Jews are geniuses. So it could either be a positive image or a negative image. And so far, he's seen as a patriot to the country. And it, show, it reflects on the Jewish community. Right. I want to point out another example from another former Soviet state, Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan which also has a small Jewish community that is very much integrated into the fabric of their society. Now, uh,
1: what is Azerbaijan in terms of demographics? What type of a country is that?
0: Azerbaijan is sandwiched between Russia and Iran, two very powerful, militaristic countries. So when you're a small country, you got to look for other friends. Azerbaijan is majority Shiite Muslim, but okay. less religious than Iran, and they're friends with Israel. And one reason why that is, is because of Albert Agarunov. In 1988 to 1994, Azerbaijan-Armenia went to war over the Karabakh region. Albert Agarunov was too old to serve in combat, but he volunteered as a tank commander. His tank movement was called the Jewish Sandwich, but unfortunately he was killed by an Armenian sniper. He's buried in the Alley of Heroes, a military cemetery in Baku. There's a school, a street named after him. He is a national hero, and everybody knows in Azerbaijan that Albert Agarunov is a Jew. And just like the Jewish community over there is proud of him, so is the Azerbaijani government. So as a result, people in Azerbaijan think of the Jews as patriots, as members of society. Similar here with Zelensky. When he says, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, he said to the Americans. That means with a million people who had fled Ukraine, with the majority of the Jewish community having fled Ukraine for their safety, Zelensky will likely be the last Jew to remain in Ukraine because it's his duty as president
1: and he's demonstrated that so much now there is a lot of uh... press out there he's he is basically universally loved right now in at least in america um, many many areas around the world as well if, if it, unless you're unless you're pro-russian you're 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 admiring the bravery and the leadership of Zelensky. i don't necessarily see him being able to hold off russia that much longer um... what is in store for him and for the jews of ukraine should russia end up conquering ukraine what can the jews in that area if they choose to re- to remain or return expect
0: should the jews return or for those who have remained it means political silence just like the jews of belarus just like in elie wiesel's uh, famous book the jews of silence when he visited the soviet union in the 1960s it means they cannot express themselves politically they can only express themselves religiously. In the Soviet Union, ethnic minorities were allowed to maintain their languages, their music, their dancing, their dress, but they could not express self-determination. And that's what will happen. When Russia took over Donetsk, Lugansk, Crimea, some Jews remained. And the Chabad Shlichem who had fled, they were replaced with new Chabad Shlichem who were answering to the Russian Chabad rather than the Ukrainian Chabad. So religious life can continue but it will now be directed from Moscow.
1: We didn't really mention some of the, uh, talk about some of the other Baltic nations over there. Is there anything that you want to tell us about that those regions and I guess a little bit northeast uh, of Ukraine, a little bit
0: uh, west of Russia? Sure, having been born in Latvia, when go. I explained to my friends in New York, what is the Jewish life in Latvia like before the war, after the war, I compared to Brooklyn and Queens. Lithuania was Brooklyn so much Jewish history, so much Jewish culture, bigger Jewish community, Latvia sort of like second fiddle to that, but um, the Baltic states were like this, during World War II there were lots of Lithuanians and Latvians who had collaborated with the Nazis. They viewed the Jews as communists because there were some communist Jews, but not all Jews are communist. Also, the, many of the Jews chose the Soviet Union as a refuge against the Nazis because even though the Soviet Union would suffocate us spiritually, they didn't kill us physically. So in 1941, when the Nazi soldiers marched into the Baltics, a lot of the Baltic people welcomed them as liberators. They helped the Nazis murder Jews, but then when they thought the Nazis would give them their independence, they were not given independence. The Nazis viewed the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Ukrainians as just a little bit higher than the Jews, but still less human than the Germans. And that was the Holocaust history of Latvia. After World War II, More than 90% of Latvia's Jewish population, those who had lived there before the war, were exterminated. My family arrived in Latvia between 1946 and 1949. 1946 my paternal and my maternal from uh, Belarus and Moldova. The Soviet Union encouraged settlers to move into Latvia to rebuild the country. At the same time, hundreds of thousands of native Latvians were deported to Siberia because they had once supported an independent Latvia. This is where my parents were born, this is where I was born. We were quiet, loyal, unassuming citizens. But living in Latvia, we also had access to radio-free Europe because we were on the Baltics. See, on the fringes of the Soviet Empire. So we had the chance to listen to it. Latvia was a big center of the Refusnik movement. Josef Mendelevich, who lives in Israel now, he's from Latvia, from Riga. There were forests there where secret Jewish clubs were organized. There, were, there was a matze bakery in Riga that was there just for show, you know, for the foreign <laughs> dignitaries. There's a synagogue in Latvia in downtown Riga that survived the Holocaust. Because why did Nazis destroy it? Because it would have destroyed the old city. It's in a tight neighborhood. Mm. I remember visiting it as a child. But um, in the early 90s, however, when Latvia became independent in 1991, they were very nationalist. People who arrived there after World War II had to learn Latvian. We lost our citizenship. The only people who had citizenship were those who were descended from pre-1940 residents. So I became stateless. We could not vote. We could not have government jobs and there was a lot of insecurity, and that's when my family moved to America.
1: The moving to America without having a state to move from, how difficult
0: is that? We were refugees because in 1992, we were still considered Soviet Jews, and thanks to Jackson-Vanik amendment and uh, all kinds of other legislation from Congress, we were allowed in, plus we had family here to sponsor us, to support us. Uh, But what happened in Latvia after we left, gradually Latvia recognized the Russian threat, and they wanted to be part of the West. They joined the European Union, they joined NATO, but part of the condition was they had to democratize, respect their minorities. Today, most of the Jews in Latvia, and if not most, certainly a large percentage of the ethnic Russians in Latvia, have Latvian citizenship, which means European Union citizenship. So Latvia has actually been able to integrate its Russian minority, and that's why the Russians in Latvia are not restive. Ukraine, however, also insisted on the ukrainian language renaming cities renaming streets and the ethnic russians of crimea and donetsk rebelled wanted to join russia which is what happened there so ukraine it's nationalism i understand the merits of nationalism and patriotism and having an identity but at the same time when a minority group feels that they are disrespected they look to another country to protect them (laughs) and that's what happened in ukraine but fortunately in latvia my uncle came to America in 1996, lived here for about four years. He was already late middle-aged. You know, it's tough to immigrate here at a later age. He moved back to Latvia and he's comfortable there. When he moved back to Latvia, I thought, you're crazy, everybody wants to immigrate to America. But he moved back and he's happy there. It's sometimes for us American Jews, it's hard to understand why do some people remain in the diaspora? Why do some people, oh, I mean, this is also diaspora, I shouldn't say that, I'm sorry. (laughs) Why do some people remain in other diaspora countries besides the United States? It's because they feel a strong attachment to their home, their culture, the graves, the monuments, the synagogues. The places that they've known their entire lives. It's the
1: same reason why American Jews remain in America, why British Jews remain in, in Britain and they don't make Aliyah and they don't go to Israel. That's because they're comfortable there, because they're used to it, because they have some sort of a pull there. If it's nationalistic, if it's their their shul, their community, their, their whole lives are there. It's hard to pick up and go. And even if you do pick up and go, there's still always going to be that thing drawing you back.
0: And I feel like having an uncle in Latvia and having in-laws in Belarus, It means I have a first-person connection to those places, but I know now that my relatives in Belarus have to leave. Even though they have property there, and they voted for the opposition, they protested two years ago, they know now that they cannot protest. They cannot share, like, or retweet what they read because the conditions are that dangerous. So it's a very difficult question whether you stay or go. If you stay, perhaps you could wait it out and the dictatorship will end at some point. But maybe it won't.
1: I mean, how long has the North Korean dictatorship been going? It's a third generation now.
0: Exactly. North Korea is in its third generation of dictatorship. Cuba's been under a U.S. embargo for 60 years and still no end in sight for the Cuban communist government. So Russia and China
1: each have a di- basically a, a dictator for life imposed over there. So yeah. so it's true you could wait it out. Um, do you foresee um, a mass migration away from the baltic states away from russia away from ukraine um in the foreseeable future uh once even once this this whole war is over but regardless of how it lands do you foresee a situation where just mass amount of people and mass amounts
0: of jews in particular decide that's enough i'm done Depends on the position of each individual some individuals have businesses properties that they're very heavily invested in and it's hard to give those things up Also, remember the Baltics are part of the EU and NATO Likewise, if they are going to move there's Germany, which welcomes Jewish immigrants (laughs) I mean they've been doing that since 1990 in fact, that's why today Germany has Buharian Jewish community and a Russian Jewish community For to make up for the Jews that they lost you know decades ago so I think some Jews will leave, even Baltics, but I feel that right now the real depopulation is happening in uh, Ukraine, and in Belarus. And about Russia, I think most Jews there will stay put.
1: Okay, um, Sergey, this has been so eye-opening. You have <laughs> a wealth of knowledge on this topic. I'm sure we didn't even scratch the surface. I'm sure there's so much more we could talk about. Um, is there any? Are there any last things that you think are important to mention for this conversation, and if, uh, and if we could have you back at some point, we will, uh, to talk more about this stuff. But is there anything else that you want to
0: leave us with? I really hope that when peace comes to Ukraine and freedom comes to Belarus, American Jews will have the opportunity to visit these countries, because there's so much history, so much culture there, and so much growing respect for Jews on an individual level. Yes, yeah, still some distrust, still some stereotypes here and there, pockets of hate, but largely it's been positive. And respect for Israel, too, as a small country resisting much bigger enemies. And right now I just want people to have in mind the Yad Yisrael organization that is doing so much for the Jews in Ukraine and in Belarus for Chabad. But I think it's the biggest philanthropic outpouring among American Jews since the Soviet Jewry and the Ethiopian Jewry movements. We should be proud of ourselves, and we have so much to do, and we should continue to do it.
1: And of course, we'll link to uh, some of those organizations in the show notes. You could find them on our social media. Speaking of which, Sergey, where can people find you? I know they could read your your work in the Queen's Jewish Link. Uh, where else can they find you?
0: Uh, they could just uh, find me on Twitter or Google me. But again, <laughs> I do a lot of things: teaching history, writing books. But you know, hopefully, whatever I have to say is uh, well informed. But if not, the public is welcome to correct me, and I'm always reconsidering my opinions based on the facts. All right. Um, do you want to plug into your books? Well, I wrote a book called Hidden Waters of New York City, which is not Jewish at all. It's about the ecology of the city, the waterways of the city. Again, just one of the other interests I do. So Hidden Waters of New York City. There's also a website called Forgotten New York about the, all the hidden history of New York City.
1: Amazing. Ser- Sergio basically wrote the parts of uh, Les Miserables that describe the Paris underground uh, sewage system. Just only that part. Not the whole story with, uh, with any of the characters.
0: By the way, as a New Yorker, if I could speak of a city in Eastern Europe that's comparable to New York, sure, it would be Odessa. Odessa is a city that was once a quarter Jewish. Odessa is a city that was the birthplace of Leon Pinsker, Zev Jabotinsky, Ahad Ha'am, Shalom Aleichem, Chaim Nachman Bialik, Mayor Dizengoff, Mandela Morker, Forum lived there. And uh, one final thing about Ukraine between twenty. 20- 172019 Ukraine had the distinction of having a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister Vladimir Groysman
1: So not only was that was their one head of state um, head of state and head, head of government head of state and head of, head of government and I'm assuming at that point outside of Israel that's the only time that's ever happened in history I'm, uh, or or in modern history let's say um, maybe back in the ancient times there was a situation like that but two two head of state and head of government so you have that in Israel where you have a president and prime minister, but maybe nowhere else ever in the world. But at
0: the same time, these individuals know that they can't be too visibly Jewish. They also have to be you know, speak Ukrainian and be very much in the Ukrainian culture. So they right. know the limitations of Jewish identity as well as the advantages and disadvantages of it.
1: It's funny, I, every time you mention these types of things where you have a head of state that is, is, a, is, is different than what maybe somebody's used to culturally, it takes me back, not takes me back because I wasn't alive yet, but it reminds me of, of John F. Kennedy, who was the first Catholic president of the United States, and he had a kind of walk on eggshells as a Catholic and c- maybe even went a little bit reverse as to what people have thought a Catholic was, that maybe had a little bit of the, the promiscuity that isn't necessarily associated with Catholics and it was a little different, so... It, maybe in terms of of that, where you have a Jewish head of state that has to kind of play against maybe some things that somebody would expect uh, stereotypically of somebody Jewish, um, and they're leading this state that maybe isn't so used to having that type of a leader, that cultural leader. Um, I that 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 was just the the concept that reminded me of of what we had here in America back in the '60s. Well,
0: having a Jewish leader in a place like Ukraine creates a new definition for nationalism instead of ethnic nationalism this is civic nationalism hmm. that anybody could be a ukrainian if they believe in the ukrainian heart homeland ukrainian identity and the defense of ukraine and that's what uh, vladimir zelensky is demonstrating civic nationalism
1: phenomenal sergey thank you so much for joining me this was amazing um and i wish you much in uh, whatever you choose to do next i'll see you in shul <laughs> my thanks to Sergei Kadinsky for joining us this week. This discussion provided quite the tour of Eastern Europe's Jewish communities, and is something we here in the West might not pay much attention to until there's a dire need for it. While there's a heavy concentration of Jews in America, and obviously Israel, it's important to remember that not all Jews everywhere are able to practice religion as freely as we are, or at least not allowed to share their opinions publicly as we are. Our hearts go out to all those in the middle of this war, and to them, and to all listening, COVID.
0: the jewish living podcast is produced by Sreli pikas our theme song is the band by ab rottenberg follow us on facebook at the jewish living podcast and on twitter and instagram at jewish underscore living you can also email the show at jewish at gmail.com the jewish living podcast is recorded in conjunction with the queen's jewish link